Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right. I'm going to go ahead and move back to your seats. Good to see you all. Good to see you all. Welcome. Um, how many of you had a nice extra hour of not really sleeping last night? Wasn't that lovely? That was great. Um, today we're winding down uh, this series that I think in the nine years that I've been here might be the longest series we've done with the exception of uh, when we did spiritual gifts and that took us 27 weeks. Um, this one's only been 13. Um, and we didn't necessarily expect it to be that long, but there was just so much the Lord has had for us in this series, in really delving into Galatians 6, 1 through 10, and allowing it to wash over us time and again, um, to speak to us from all its multifaceted angles. For me, it's one of those kind of chunks of Paul that are so dense that like every phrase, you need to slow down and allow it to speak to you. So today, what we're going to do um, is I'm going to lead us on a final meditation of Galatians 6, 1 through 10, um, and then uh, I'm going to give you my phone number, and you're going to be able to text me any remaining questions. Are there things that were stirred up in you over the past 13 weeks um, that maybe you want me to talk about more, or things that you've been thinking about or um, that have kind of been on your mind? And, you know, I've always, I, I'm not a big fan of, you know, that I don't think faith is about coming to conclusions so we can tuck those away and then we're done with it. I don't think that's how it works. I think really good questions lead to a thousand good answers and a thousand good answers lead to even more good questions. I think that's how faith works. And so we continue to work this out uh, together. So I'll give you my number. Um, you can text me your questions. I'll keep it. I mean, if I have your number and I know it's you, um, I'll keep that a secret so you can just say whatever you want. And I'm not going to be like, wow, we're not doing Megan's question, because that's weird. Uh, and if I don't know you and you text me, I won't know it's you, so I won't out you uh, for being a heretic. Um, you all get three strikes, remember, when it comes to heresy before you're uh, excommunicated. Um, so, and then I'm going to kind of very briefly go through all the main things that we talked about in this series, just to kind of stir things up. And during that time, of course, you can text me. So... Um, for the last time, <laughs> that's good, Megan, that's good. Uh, for the last time, uh, we're going to be doing uh, Galatians 6. So uh, remember, like, when we do this kind of Lectio Divina, divine reading of Scripture, um, it's very important that we slow ourselves down. We talk about how our bodies uh, kind of lead our minds and our hearts, and if we're all closed up in our bodies and we're kind of like this, we're, our posture betrays the fact that we're closed off to God. And so we open up our bodies, we uh, become aware of our breathing, and we welcome God into the space to speak to us through Scripture. We're not analyzing it like we're sitting down with uh, you know, a commentary, and that's a, very, that's a great way to do Bible, but we're really allowing the Holy Spirit to show us something. Now, for some of you, um, God might highlight a particular word or a phrase that really captures your imagination. Um, maybe the Lord reminds you of a memory um, that ties into what's being spoken. Maybe uh, it, there's another scripture or there's an image that you get. Like just being open and available to, the, to God, and part of um, what this process does for us, it helps us to each learn our individual language that we have with God, that God speaks to each of us a little bit differently. And the more that we practice this kind of Lectio Divina reading of scripture, the more we're tuned into how God speaks. 
And so I'm going to pray. I want you all to kind of loosen up, make sure you're not closed off, um, uh, that you're, you're open and available, your shoulders are broad and back. Um, just become aware of your breathing for a moment. You breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. So you're, just, you're in this moment and you're really allowing God to speak. So let's just, we'll take a moment of, of quiet and then um, I'm going to read Galatians 6, 1 through 10. Live creatively, friends. If someone falls into sin, forgivingly restore him, saving your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day's out. Stoop down and reach out to those who are oppressed. Share their burdens and so complete Christ's law. If you think you are too good for that, you're badly deceived. Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you have been given, and then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. Be very sure now, you who have been trained to a self-sufficient maturity, that you enter into a generous, common life with those who have trained you, sharing all the good things that you have and experience. Don't be misled. No one makes a fool of God. What a person plants, he will harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. All he'll have to show for his life is weeds. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's spirit do the growth work in him, 
harvests a crop of real life, eternal life. So let's not allow ourselves to get fatigued doing good. At the right time, we will harvest a good crop if we don't give up or quit. Right now, therefore, every time we get the chance, let us work for the benefit of all, starting with the people closest to us in the community of faith. So I want to encourage you to take out your phones to start a note and just start jotting down. What do you see? What do you hear? What stands out? What makes you curious? Sometimes when God speaks to us through Scripture, it's not a conclusion, but it's an invitation. That, that curiosity that stirs within us could be an invitation from God. And just begin to notice, what, what is standing out to me, and do I believe that that might be the Holy Spirit speaking? So you can continue writing, and even as I'm talking through um, some of the main points, maybe it's going to continue to stir things up for you. But the, the questions are, what still lingers on my mind, and what is God inviting me to explore from this series? Um, so there's my phone number, 540 is in Northern Virginia, number from back in high school. And now it's part of me. So um, we entered into this series... Um, you know, that the whole vision for this year is from the throne flows a river of renewal. And there was this question before our community for 2022, what is it that bears renewing? What is it that King Jesus wants to renew? And we felt very strongly, especially with a lot of things that were happening in our community. There was, um, there was a lot of uh, suffering and trials for many of you. And there was a question, not just for you, but the people around you, are we going to step in? Are we going to support one another? How do we love each other well? There was also a, a decent amount of conflict within our community, that people were butting heads, that over time, the, the longer you're with someone, the more you have to leave behind that presentation of the good little Christian boy, the good little Christian girl, how are you, I'm fine, too blessed to be stressed, and you just move on. And you actually start living life with one another, and you enter into conflict, um, which I think is actually a symbol of health in an odd way, that the more we choose depth with one another, the more things come to the surface. Uh, but we need the skills to be able to maneuver uh, that depth with, with God's grace. So we landed on this passage, Galatians 6, 1 through 10, and decided to really break it down. 
um, that the first part was maneuvering this paradox that Paul gives us between carrying our own loads and carrying each other's burdens. And what is my personal responsibility to, to bear? And what are things in my life that maybe are more than I'm capable of carrying that I need my people to help me with? Um, and that a lot of times I think mature, Im, uh, immaturity is when we blame other people for what's actually our responsibility. Um, or conversely, where we try to, to do on our own things that we were never meant uh, to be able to do on our own. So we looked at that, that difference, um, and then we kind of shifted into the second half of the passage, looking at what is this generous common life, and where is it to take us? So in that first, uh, that first part about carrying your own load, we had these three messages. So we began with this, uh, to know ourselves is to allow ourselves to be fully human, which enables us to draw close to God and offer grace to others, that the greatest gift that the Holy Spirit gives us is self-awareness, being able to understand who we are in the light of Christ and to know how we operate in the world, what are our gifts, what are our liabilities, to be honest with all of that and to know this is my personal responsibility to steward uh, my personality. Um, Secondly, we talked about the gift of limitations, that God has created us with limitations and it's up to us if they become a blessing or a curse. Um, We only have so much time and we only have so much capability and so much of our culture around us is always expecting us to go harder, to produce more, to be stronger and we feel stretched thin and we feel guilt and shame that we can't offer as much as we are quote unquote supposed to. But what if we actually recognize that those limitations are blessings from God and we pivot from saying, I'm just so busy to saying, I'm so sorry, I'm just limited and how much that would bless our ability to own what we have to carry. And then the third one, that the goal of spiritual and emotional health is anti-fragility. That a lot of times in our modern society, we're told um, that you are are fragile and you are incapable and you're feeling overwhelmed. Um, So how do we kind of gather around this perspective of anti-fragility that says, no, the more that we learn how to uh, persevere, um, the more that we learn how to listen to our emotions and to process those things, we actually become stronger because of that pressure that we feel, and we call this maturity. Uh, next, we looked at more carrying one another's burdens. And so Jonathan talked to us about forgiveness, almost being the, the bridge between what's mine to carry and what's ours to carry together. Got him. Um, so he said, when we come close to Jesus... Forgiveness is the pathway where personal and collective deliverance takes place. So how do we extend forgiveness to one another so that we can continue to move down the the road together? Um, I talked about blessing being a form of prayer that reveals to us what's hidden, reminds us of what's forgotten, and opens us up to possibility. Um, That we're so, um, we're used to flattery and advice from other people, but how often do we actually bless one another? Um, We talked about uh, the last praxis by working for the benefit of all. We ensure everyone remains close to God and grows together week in and week out. So as we serve one another, as we take care of each other, as we take care of our beautiful children together, we all grow and nobody gets left behind. Uh, And then I did a a message on uh, the marriage and singleness, like relationships within the community. And I love this quote from Pete Scazzeri. He said, married couples bear witness to the depth of Christ's love Singles bear witness to the breadth of Christ's love. 
Both marrieds and singles point to and reveal Christ's love, but in different ways. Both need to learn from one another about these different aspects of Christ's love. Um, that as single people, we're not half a person wandering around waiting for our other half. We have worth and we have value in the same way that Jesus was single and you know we didn't trash on his ministry for it. Um, but that marriage is also this really beautiful example to us of the relationship between Christ and his church. So that led us to talking a little bit more about relationships and how do we really understand and take stock of the relationships in our lives. Jenna talked to us about friendship. Uh, we are a world of people who need to connect and connect in a real personal way. But can we clearly articulate what kind of friendship each person in our life has? Or do we live in this kind of amorphous blob called friend where we don't have clear um, expectations of one another? Um, Bree gave her first solo sermon and uh, talked to us about our relationship to mentors, people who have invested in us so that we grow into maturity. She said maturity doesn't come naturally to us, nor do we stumble into maturity on accident. Someone taught us and showed us the way. And are we seeking that out in our lives? And then in turn, are we pivoting uh, to mentor those who are coming up behind us? And then I spoke about um, listening incarnationally, that learning to listen openly is the first step to learn to love incarnationally, that most of us are terrible listeners. We're waiting to talk. We're waiting for somebody to shut up. Um, we're, we've already got our advice already packed, but how do we learn how to enter into somebody else's world without leaving ourselves behind to really listen to the deepest part of them, to see what's going on? And in that way, we kind of embody that incarnational uh, presence of Jesus. And then finally, these last few weeks, we've been talking about where, where does this take us? Where is all of this headed? Um, so I talked about that real life, eternal life phrase that we taste little bit of bits of heaven now in order to receive heaven at the end of time, that we know what we're doing as the community of God, the family of God, is that we are like this little colony of heaven we've spoken of elsewhere, where we're learning how to love well under the rule of King Jesus in a way that it demonstrates to the world what is uh, inevitable for, uh, for all of us, for the entire human family. Jonathan uh, talked to us about how we orient our lives in the community of faith first. So that last little phrase about doing good, especially to those that you're with together. And it's not because these are our favorite people and we don't like the people that are outside the church. It's that we're all learning to love in this really safe place together and as we're doing that, then we're able to pivot and bless people who are outside of the community. So doing good in here is work done for everyone's benefit. And then last week, kind of summing up how I see Christ in this, that it's our willingness to embrace both the neighbor and the enemy, the oppressed and the oppressor that makes us most like King Jesus. And I talked a little bit about how I feel like... Um, inclusion as a value isn't bad, but it has its limits because we begin to um, exclude those who are not inclusive. And we see these kind of subversions, constant subversions of power structures in our society, but there's always somebody who's on the outskirts. And the radical nature of what we see with Jesus on the cross is that everybody is welcomed in, our neighbors and our enemies. The oppressed are welcomed in, but so are the oppressors. We had a great conversation in our community group about this, that um, you know, for every uh, poor person, there was a Roman soldier. For um, every, you know, outcast uh, Samaritan, 
there was, um, you know, a, a, a Jewish religious elite. Like, God welcomes all of them in. And when we have this posture of exclusivity or where we demonize certain groups and call them our enemies and hold them at arm's length, we're actually undoing um, the work of Jesus on the cross who brings down the dividing wall of hostility. So, let's see if any of y'all text him. Okay, we got it. Let's see. Uh, first question. So something unrelated or maybe not from the series um, is how does suffering and pain fit into this common life? Um, that's mostly because I'm under extreme pain and suffering, so maybe just a me question. Well, that is, first of all, that is very certainly not just a me question. Um, I think suffering is one of the most common things that unites the human family. And um, I think one of the uh, most difficult things in our modern era is that we have this idea that life is about avoiding suffering, or that we don't deserve to suffer, or we shouldn't suffer. Um, and so whenever it comes along, we don't really know what to do with it. We're, we're trying to mitigate the suffering in our lives. And there's two forms of suffering. There's suffering from the outside world that's, that, that comes into your world, which is inevitable. Like, this world is, is broken, and it's fallible, um, and evil still has a place within this world. Um, but then there's an internal kind of suffering that comes, I think, mostly from our resistance of admitting to that. Um, that a lot of times, for example, in the Christian household, uh, many of you maybe came up Pentecostal or charismatic, and we have this idea of, like, we just move from glory to glory. Um, and we're just going to be awesome, and we're just going to keep being awesome. And any kind of testimony we tell is like, yes, I used to be a mess, and there was all these horrible things, but now I'm fine because I have Jesus. Um, and what I've recognized is that God does not exempt us from suffering as Christians, um, but that the Holy Spirit takes us by the hand and walks us through suffering, um, showing us his faithfulness to us in a way that it converts, that it, it helps us to differentiate between suffering from the outside and the, and the suffering that we uh, incur on the inside uh, through our resistance to it that we begin to trust God more through it and that God begins to show us something fantastic in that. Um, you know, it's like Richard Rohr says, there's only ever been one story in this life, death, and resurrection. And that's, that's, the, you know, that's the Christ narrative, but that's the narrative for all of us that we have to die in order to be reborn. And our resistance to dying, to death and suffering actually prevents us from experiencing the possibility of resurrection because that's the place where we begin to let go of our narratives. So I think suffering binds us incredibly to one another, um, but it also binds us to God, and it requires an extraordinary amount of vulnerability uh, to welcome other people into our suffering and to allow God to do that work in that place. And sometimes it takes a long time, even us trying to control the narrative of like, okay, I'm going to suffer, but I'm going to suffer for seven, well, a week, and then I'm going to be done with it, or if God doesn't fix it by this point. Uh, and that's still our ego desire to control the narrative, but continually learning how to let go and how to be open before God takes an extraordinary amount of discipline in that. Okay. Um, my, my very two questions. These are very two questions. There are very, there's exactly two of them. Uh, when someone is wanting me to carry their load, their responsibility, any advice to kindly pivot? Ooh, this is a good one. When someone wants me to carry their load. 
Um, I think part of our responsibility to one another is to learn how to ask really good questions to help figure out what, what's really going on beneath the surface. Because I think a lot of times we ask things of our community that we haven't really thought through what it is that we're asking. It's instinctual. So for example, one of the most helpful things that I found is someone wants to, to share or to talk is to say, are you asking me to just listen to you or are you asking me to help you find a solution? Um, and a lot of times as the speaker, we don't know which of those we want, right? And we often set the listener up for failure because we don't know if we just want someone to listen or if we want them to help us find a solution. So I think being able to ask those kinds of questions of people, uh, make sure that we're not making assumptions that they're asking us to carry their stuff. Um, and I think conversely, a lot of times the way in which we bear one another's burdens is helping someone to figure out what is theirs to carry, being a good listening ear, asking really good questions that help them dig deep into what's really happening in them. Uh, number two, how can we keep from others' burdens becoming too much? Sometimes I feel like there are too many burdens to bear, and it's hard to discern what is being a biblical friend and not. Yes, this is a great question. I was talking to my therapist this week because I was like, I know better than everybody else, and they still don't do what I tell them, and then now I'm just full of contempt and if these Egypts would just do what I said, then all their problems would go away. So I feel you. And then he just goes, this is very him, he just goes, so how have you experienced love recently? And I'm like, oh, um, how, do we, how do we not do this too much? Um, I think kind of going back to that incarnational listening message, which has been really impactful for me, is recognizing Am I the kind of person that holds people at arm's length because I'm afraid they're going to take too much from me in that kind of self-preservational mindset? Or am I the kind of person who so freely gives myself to other people's problems that I lose my sense of self? And that that goal, what Jesus shows us, is how do I retain my full understanding of who I am, my gifts, my limitations, that I'm just not capable of being there at all points and all, you know, in, for somebody's pain? Um, so how do I know what it is that I have to give and what are my limitations? And I think the more you can begin to articulate that to yourself, the better you're going to be able to step into other people's, uh, in, in, into other people's struggles. Um, and to know that, um, that fine line between being Christ-like and having a Messiah complex, right? I think when you make it your personal responsibility to fix or save somebody, you're taking the place of Jesus, and it's to recognize that you belong to the body of Christ. You belong to the family of God. And it's not one single person's job to fix one other person in this community, that we, but that we bear that together. How do I love myself well without diving fully into selfishness? I'm struggling with this right now. I tell you more about it during this month's coffee meeting. Okay. Um. I think, yeah, I, uh, selfishness to me is more about um, when I posit myself as the hero at the expense of recognizing my uh, shortcomings. So I think, I think self-awareness, it's holding those two halves of what it means to be a human being, that I have all of these gifts, these dreams, these aspirations, but I also have um, these harmful patterns in my life, these coping mechanisms, these ways that I hurt people or these things that I still need to grow in. And I think that the practice of true self-awareness is being able to hold those in tension. 
um, we can be selfish in an egotistical way where we only focus on our gifts, right? And we're like, I'm so wonderful. I'm God's gift to the earth. Like, there needs to be more of me on the planet. Um, but I think when you wallow in, in the dark side of who you are as well, that's still rather selfish. Um, that you're like, oh, I'm a piece of garbage. I'm terrible. Nobody could love me. Look, like, that's still a form of selfishness. Both of those are navel-gazing. Um, but to hold those together and to see the full honesty of what it means to be a human being. I think if we do that well, it means that we turn our eyes to Jesus and we say, God, I want you to amplify the, the goodness of who I am, and I also want you to give me the grace to deal with the muck and the mire of my own story. Um, and so I think selfishness tends to lack humility. Even if it's self-loathing, there's still a sense of, la uh, of a lack of humility there. Scene. S-C-E-N-E. -E. Overt sin is brought up gently and humbly and with support and is met with defensiveness and labeled as judgment. What next? Okay. Overt sin is brought up gently and humbly and with support and it's met with defensiveness and labeled as judgment. Yeah, this is really hard because there's a, a common thread in our modern society that says, um, if you critique me, you don't love me. Like love is only affirmation. And I think that makes it really difficult to enter into some of these kinds, the biblical vision we have for community, which is that we invest in one another and we help each other to grow and we're talking about our deficiencies. And I actually heard someone say this this week that encouragement is a particular kind of love that's not compassionate. Compassion blesses who you are today, but encouragement actually prioritizes who you could or will become, which technically doesn't seem, then that's a, that's a form of judgment. It's a good form of judgment. Um, and so I think if it's met with defensiveness when you're trying to bring something up gently and humbly with someone else, um, I think reinforcing that you're for somebody is just as important as what it is that you're saying. Hello? No, you're okay. Hi, guys. We have a giant ball back there, and so I think later they're going to do something very cool with it. And there's the Tesla coil. Oh, that's okay. That's all right. Enjoy the science. <laughs> um, so I, I actually remember uh, Greg and Annie Singleton talking about this in the first six months of their marriage, that Greg was just really struggling with some of this stuff. Because, like, you know, it's like I said in the one about marriage, the worst thing that you can do to somebody you claim to love is marry them because now they're stuck with you, you know? And, uh, and Annie had said about six months into their marriage, they were just, they were just, it just felt like there was this distrust. And she said, hold on, you know that I'm for you, right? And it occurred to him, no, I don't know that. And I don't believe that. And I think that that's a lot of times what happens. We're so fearful of what we perceive as judgment that maybe actually be the thing that saves our lives, that we have to reinforce to one another, I am for you and I'm with you. And so when I when I bring this perspective to the relationship, I'm not trying to diminish you or make you small. I'm trying to help you to grow and be free. And the more that we can articulate the motivation underneath those things, I think the better we're going to see the fruit in our relationships. Um, can you quickly explain verse 6? Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instruction. Yes. Um, in most basic terms, uh, most biblical scholars agree that Paul here is speaking about uh, financial support of your leaders, which is why I had Bree do this sermon and I didn't do this sermon. 
Um, the one who receives instruction in the word, you guys, should share all good things with your instructor. So it's, it, it's about recognizing those who, uh, who mentor you, who guide you, um, and not being a leech, and not just taking from people um, their, their hard-earned wisdom and teaching and pastoral gifts or whatever it is, but actually kind of offering back. So most scholars, like I said, they would consider that this, this is Polly Paul making a, a financial proclamation, but I think that there's more to it than that. Being able to, to bless your leaders with your words, with your service, um, of, of what Bree had said, like taking up that responsibility to also become a mentor. You know, we, we talked about Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, that he says all sons and eventually grow up to become fathers, and all daughters eventually come, grow up to become mothers. So you recognizing, are you at that point in your growth and maturity where it's time for you to turn and to kind of scan the horizon for the prodigal children coming home? And I think that's a huge blessing uh, for leaders as well, um, is when they see their students really start to live this out in maturity. Um, it would be amazing to offer the tools for active listening to others so we can put some of this into action and truly show up for the people in our lives. Not just talk about it, but also put it into practice like a workshop. Yes, and that workshop is called Emotionally Healthy Relationships, and we're currently in week six. Who's in it right now? Yeah, it's so good. Um, so every spring, we're going to be offering emotionally healthy spirituality. Every fall, emotionally healthy relationships. Um, my goal would be that every single person in this community goes through both of those um, at some point uh, to kind of build up some of those skills. And uh, the thing that I love the most about it is that you, we are practicing this. We, like, literally, I think last week was, was it last week, Johnny? Was, like, we were sitting down, and then it's like, can, can you listen? I'm like, yes, I'm going to practice it. And we literally did that. So um, that's in the thing. With the language, the abused and the abuser be the same as the oppressed and the oppressor. Um, I, I, yes, I think so. Um, this is a really, this is, I think, one of the hardest concepts when we understand God's plan for saving the whole world, um, is when we think of the, the, the horrible people, um, that God has a heart for them as well. That's really hard for us. And it might be something like, well, would Hitler get into heaven? And you're like, does, you know, which is an easy one, because like Hitler's the, the fall boy for everything, um. Not that I'm justifying that or anything, but like, you know, we, we put those into the abstracts and you say, well, is God's love big enough for someone like Hitler? But then we think about our abusers. And I mentioned this in my sermon. I was uh, sexually abused by an older boy when I was 12. And it, it kind of, I blocked it for many years and it kind of really messed with me for a long time until I started to work through it. And part of the healing process was coming to this place of saying, am I, do I want to see that person redeemed? And if I can't answer that well, it, it probably just means I'm not far enough along in my healing process because I do think what happens with abusers is that they abdicate the healthy role that they were supposed to have in our lives. Like, so for my spiritual father who's now passed, he would have said like his, his brother abdicated the role of brother to take up the role of abuser. Um, but always having like... It's really hard. I get it. But we still should have this perspective as Christians that we want to see all come to know God because that's God's heart. Um, and if there's people that we say, oh, but not them. They're just too far gone. We're making judgments 
that we know better uh, than God. And that doesn't mean forgive and forget. That does not mean being reconciled to those who have abused us um, just because that's what the Bible tells us to do. We don't put ourselves back in dangerous situations, but we should hope for redemption for all people. And some of the most powerful stories in the Bible and throughout Christian history have been the worst of the worst coming to know Jesus. Paul being an example, like he was a domestic terrorist. And can you imagine this guy walks into your home group on a Thursday night and it's like, hey, um, I met Jesus on the road to Damascus and now I'm in. You're like, uh, no, like you killed my friends and my family, you know, like that's terrifying. Um, but that's, a, that's part of the, I think the radical message of the cross is everybody is welcomed in, um, the abused and the abuser, because we believe that God is big enough to be able to redeem all of it. How does one stay in the moment when your love in the name of Jesus is being rejected or not well received? Um, yes, there's a, there's a principle called non-reactivity, and we see this, we see this in Jesus. Like, again, keep going through the story of Jesus over and over again and really paying attention to the way he responds to people, Jesus never reacts. He doesn't, like, get offended or uh, throw a hissy fit and storm off and throw all of his toys out of the, the, what do you call it, baby carriage? Bassinet? Stroller, thank you. I was going to say pram, and I'm like, no one even knows what I'm talking about. Um, and then Jesus gives this proclamation as well in Matthew 10, the first time he sends the disciples out on mission. He says, go and find a, a house of peace. If you're not received, kick the dust off your sandals and move on. And um, I think that that's, there's a really important principle there for us that our job is to extend as unjudgmental a form of love as we can. And if it's not received, um, to reflect and say, at the end of the day, did I do the best that I could with the time that I had been given? Or am I, am I judging my worth based on how, my, how well my love is received by others? Um, which is a very, very sticky place to be um, because you, you, can't, you can't judge your worth by how other people receive. Your job is to do the best you can to communicate love as best you can, but um, you can't constantly be evaluating yourself based on other people. So staying in the moment, you know, again, like I think learning how to listen is a huge part of that being loved because we, we usually first love people the way that we know how to be loved, you know, like through those love languages, for example. And I see this a lot with, uh, with couples especially. Someone is like maybe showering somebody with gifts and the other person's just like, I don't know how you feel about me. And you're like, uh, did you see the car in the driveway? It's because that's not how that person receives love. And so the second way that we learn to love people is to learn to love how they receive it, which means attunement and changing our perspective and saying, okay, well, that's not how I naturally offer love, but it's more important that you know that you are loved than it is me just continuing to do what I do. And then the third and final step, I think, is to love how God loves and how God desires to love our beloved, which really means praying and advocating for our person or our people and learning how to offer them a form of love that perhaps they didn't even know that they desired. Uh, one lingering question I have relates to the messy middle um, where we own our emotions as our own load, the goal of anti-fragility, and in contrast, where actions become emotionally abusive. 
and they become a community burden. I understand we don't want to give a heckler's veto to people who can claim that they were emotionally abused, harmed based on their own subjective judgments, but there are so many recent stories where church communities became toxic because the internal structures uh, normal al allowed people to abuse others. So I guess the question is, how do we both pursue anti-fragility while not creating a permission structure for others to abuse community members emotionally? Uh, because they can just say, hey, your emotions are your load, uh, not mine. Yeah, this is, a, this is a really great question. And this is the tricky thing with like, we said a lot at the beginning, we carry your own load, carry each other's burdens. It's not as clean as we would like it to be because part of who we are is our relationship to others. Um, and I don't think, I, I don't think in general it's a good idea to say to somebody, hey, that's, that's your thing. Like, that's on your side. Like, I have nothing to say to it. Um, so that kind of over-siloing of it is really tricky. I think when it comes to, um, uh, uh, so this is a big thing that, that I've had to really learn, is to express to somebody hey, when you behave this way, this is how it makes me feel. Um, because a lot of times when we're in a really hard spot, we're not aware of how our actions are uh, affecting people that we claim to love. We're just in this kind of emotional storm, and we don't realize that we're actually kind of hurting other people without realizing it. And so I think a big part of building the bridge is helping others to recognize our relatedness in the moment. And it, it, you know, it's gonna depend on the kind of relationship that you're speaking of. If it's a really intimate relationship, like uh, you know, a marriage, or if it's just a more general relationship, like people that you see in this community once a week, a couple times a month. Um, but being able to articulate our experience of somebody else's emotions in a way that you're not accusing somebody or demonizing their feelings, but you are saying there are consequences to how those feelings are affecting the way that you are presenting yourself in the world. And that's very, very tricky. That is a huge skill set to be able to learn um, because we don't want to accuse people. So we've said, uh, we were just doing emotionally healthy relationships. If I say, I feel, and the word feel followed by the word like or as, I feel like this. Like I remember talking to somebody saying, hey, what, what are you feeling right now? I feel like you don't even care about me. Whoa, first off, that's not a feeling, that's an accusation. We're, not, we're no longer entering into your inner world. We're now putting me on the defensive for me going, of course I care about you. Blah, blah, blah. Now I, my job is to state my case of why I care instead of us tending to the thing that we actually both want is to explore your, your interior world. So there are, um, there's a lot of nuance and care and there's a really big skill set that you need to be able to do that, to enter in, to listen well, to ask really good questions, to remain... Um, like confident in your own person in the midst of somebody else's storm in a way that you're non-reactive, that you're not holding them at arm's length, but you're not losing your sense of self in that. And, and recognizing it takes a long time. We, we want like a one-fix solution for, uh, for these. Like, I just do this course and all of a sudden I'm emotionally healthy. No, it's your entire life. For all of us, it's our entire lives. And... Um, I think that's, that's welcoming the dedication to one another that over time we are going to get it wrong and we're going to hurt one another. Again, I think I'm surprised when we're surprised that we get hurt in community. You know, it's like um, the Trunchbull says in Matilda, like the perfect school is one that doesn't have any kids in it. Like the perfect church 
is one that doesn't have any people in it, right? Uh, because people hurt people. But we do that in a way that there's forgiveness, that there's reconciliation. We try again, and we continue to grow together. In a world demanding us to produce more product, pay the bills on time, and to participate in the Christmas market machine, how can we actually pause, give our burdens to God and our community, and be present in the moment we're in? Um, I, I think one of the, uh, the biggest acts of resistance today is to develop your rule of life for a season. Um, we usually end up in, I don't, I don't know why, because I do this too, we'll end up in a season by accident and go, oh my gosh, how did I get here that I wasted all this time and I didn't, whatever, because we're not thinking forward and using the tools that God has given us to shape. So like, yeah, we're moving towards Advent and Christmas. And it's being able to slow down with the Lord and to say, what do you have in store for me? And how do, I, how do I arrange my time so that I don't miss it? Um, I, I, the more that we've celebrated Advent as a community, the more adamant I've been of like, I don't want to miss what the Advent season has to speak to me so that Christmas just comes and goes and I've totally lost it. And you don't have to participate in the consumerist part of Christmas. Like we do, as Christians, we get to reclaim um, what is part of our heritage and to do that well. Like, and so examine, like, what are the things that I want to do to actually, oh God, I almost said reason for the season, gross. Uh, what, do I, what do I actually, like, what am I being welcomed into in this season? And how do I arrange my time to make it non-negotiable? So like Wednesday nights, we're going to be at Audubon Park doing these taze uh, worship and scriptural readings with that community. Like, for me, those Wednesdays are going to be non-negotiable. I don't, you know, go and see a funny Christmas movie. I don't go to uh, Gaylord, uh, uh, what they thing they do, like, it's all crazy, whatever, that stuff. Yeah, I'm not going to go to that on a Wednesday because it's more important that I'm with my community in worship, allowing the scripture to speak to me, the Christmas story. Um, so being able to do those kind of things, like finding a devotional, there's a really good one called There is a Light. It's a collection of, like, a whole bunch of, different writers uh, for each day of Advent. Um, and Sabbath as a political act of resistance. Um, we give up our, our Sabbath uh, so easily in the name of productivity, consumerism, and kind of late era capitalism. And like for you to choose a Sabbath and to, to carve that time out and to say, no, this is, my, this is my line in the sand that I will not participate in this consumerist, individualistic society, I am made for the kingdom of God, uh, I think is a really, that's a really big deal. And that takes a long time to get it right. How do we hold a theology of embrace without devolving into a blanket endorsement of harmful behaviors and beliefs? Yes. There's nothing in a theology of embrace that speaks to um, approving or disapproving of what people believe. And I think that that's the problem in our modern society is that we think that love is only affirmation and then we think hate is disagreement and we can only enter into relationship with people who agree with us. Um, and I think that that's the tragedy, um, again, of what I said about like inclusion and exclusion. I think we would all agree like exclusion is a bad thing, generally speaking. But that's the limit of that inclusive mindset is we start becoming exclusive of those who aren't as inclusive as we are. And it 
because those values are based upon do we agree or do we disagree? Do we have the same political beliefs, religious beliefs, or whatever? Like, it's, it's all ideologically based. And embrace is not based on ideology. Embrace is based on presence. It's, it's, it's based on the willingness to receive the other into your little sphere of influence um, and to wrap your arms around them in, in gentleness and to believe that gentleness does something to both of you, like you're transformed by the encounter of another person, again, that has nothing to do with what they believe or what you believe or how they voted or how you voted or whatever that might be. Um, and I think that that sets the table then to begin to have hard conversations um, like across the table, like hand in hand, we actually begin to talk about what we believe, what we're not sure about, the questions we have about things. Because like, how many of you are, like, you feel like you're walking around in eggshells all the time in this modern society, right? Like you don't feel like you can say what you think and you don't feel like you can say you don't know. And that's the, that's the two problems. And what a tragic thing that is that we're all so afraid of one another. Um, and I think embrace lays the fertile soil for us to begin to talk about things and work it out together. Um, if we don't create clear stances in effort to keep walls from being unnecessarily built up, how do we protect ourselves from a theology of relativism? Yeah, um, I think to me, again, like last week I said, this is why I don't think churches, or at least I don't want this for our church, that we create policies and stances on like we're pro-life or pro-choice or we're affirming or we're non-affirming because I think stances are lazy theology. I think it's more for the people that are already on, on our, our side that we are morally superior and the people that don't agree with the line that we've created, they're inferior, they're on the outside, they don't get to be part of what we are. Um, and so I think far from, like it, it undoes, I think, a lot of the vision that, that God gives us for what the church can be. And like I said last week, I think you should have opinions on abortion. I think you should have opinions on uh, questions around sexual orientation and gender. Like you should be thinking through these things and engaging with one another about these things. But for us to make some sort of blanket statement, um, I think does more damage than it does good. Um, and and it, I think it's sad that we think that that's what being faithful means. It's like, I have a nice little phrase. Uh, in uh, the book, Jesus and John Wayne, and Kristen DeMay does this interesting kind of reading of evangelicalism in this country over the past hundred years. And she said, part of the fundamentalist movement was reducing everything to make it more marketable because they knew that they, if they appealed to the lowest common denominator for Americans, they would win the show. And that's where we get this very tragic, and they created this expectation for Christians. Everything should just be simple. Like the gospel is simple, and these, these, these ideas are simple, and God said it, I believe it, that settled. Like all of that is a result of marketing in the early 1900s that, that robbed us of our capacity to think and engage with one another, with care, with intelligence. And I think, at least for you guys, I can't speak for other churches, you seem to be far more intelligent than most churches would give you credit for. Um, I don't know that you've been told that. I don't know if you've ever been challenged to think. Um, but I don't think the choice is either we create unified stances or we devolve into relativism. I think we, we learn how to wrestle these things out with one another. And I think that's what Embrace does for us.
I'm going to invite the, the, the band to come up. Um, there's a lot of more questions here. Um, so I'll just kind of answer one more. Where do we even begin in loving an enemy? One who has caused so much pain and hurt, how do you get past that? This is a very good question. Jesus says in um, the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In this way, you will be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so he's go, well, so what is God's perfection? God's perfection is his uh, complete capacity to love his enemies. That's what God's perfection is, his ability to love his enemies. And so he, Jesus gives us there the very first thing is that we pray for our enemies. Um, we don't pray against them, but we actually pray for them, which is fascinating to me that I think the spirit that we've been given is a spirit of advocacy. Are you advocating for your enemies in prayer? Because maybe the best thing that for you with your enemies, people who have hurt you, is that you don't engage face-to-face. Maybe that's not safe, and that's real. Um, but you can pray for your enemies. And I think a lot of times what happens there is that God begins to change your heart and that you have a heart of compassion for those who have hurt you. And that will give you the discernment to know, what, okay, what are the next steps? Secondly, um, it's being able to work through your own pain and hurt and to do that with uh, a therapist, to do that with a spiritual director, to do that with a community who loves you that can help you to get past it. Um, we need to learn how to articulate uh, clearly the things that have happened to us, that we confess it to God and we confess it to one another, um, and, and, and we are specific. And the more specific you are in learning how to tell your story, the more that you will see yourself uh, set free from that. But we remember that forgiveness is the mandate that we have. Um, we have a hope for reconciliation, we have a hope for renewal of relationship, but forgiveness is the mandate. Um, and I'm always shooketh by um, the, the Amish perspective on this, especially like a lot of the Anabaptists who were nonviolence is kind of central to their theology. And that they say, um, we forgive, and then we process the emotions on the other side of the forgiveness. Where a lot of us are like, I have to work through my feelings before I can forgive this person. Um, and I think we've got it backwards. And I wonder what happens when we pray for those who persecute us, we pray for our enemies, we forgive them, and then on the other side of that, we work through the emotional fallout of the things that have happened to us or the places that we have been hurt. Um, and always having that eye towards seeing the redemption of everybody and even seeing our enemies come to know God. So I'm going to invite you to stand. Um, and I'll, maybe I'll answer some of these other questions um, and throw them up online. Um, but my encouragement to you is, um, like I said, a lot of these, you know, we crave the one-liner or the quick program or whatever it is. Like, these are, these are heavy subjects, but the fruit that can come from us continuing to work it out with one another in the community of God through prayer through discussion, through practice, that's where we begin to see this growth into maturity and it renews our idea of what community can be. 
um, that we recognize, yeah, we're, we're all bumping around in the dark and we're going to hurt each other. But praise be to God that we have this, such a high expectation for what community can be. Um, but we also have this thing called grace that's kind of been baked into the middle of it. That we offer one another grace, we offer ourselves grace and to continue on that journey of learning and growing uh, to, to further embody um, the truth of who Christ is. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to worship. And in worship, um, we're continuing to do this work. We're speaking over ourselves and one another, these totally unreasonable, wild things that we can claim to believe about God and the things that that reality of who God is speaks over us. Um, and we're strengthened in that. We're strengthened through worship by singing together. Uh, we're formed by it so that when we go back out into the world, we bring that strength, we bring that blessing with us wherever we go and with whomever we uh, engage. So let's pray and let's get into some worship. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for this season in our community um, that you, uh, I, just, I just think about what Allison is teaching, sweet little Rose, I can do hard things. And all of us in this room, we can do hard things because we have you on our side. Because we have a great cloud of witnesses cheering us on from heaven right now. Lord, each one of us are more capable than we believe because we know you. And that you've delivered us from the evil one. You have raised us up into new life. Father, as a community, may we be this little colony of heaven, this alternative society that shows what it looks like when Jesus is on the throne, what that means for restoration and renewal, what it means for forgiveness and reconciliation, what it means for being put back together physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, that day by day, we look a little bit more like Jesus than we did the day before. So Holy Spirit, we give you permission to move in us and through us in this time. If you give us a word for one another, or if you put it on us to ask the person next to us to pray something over us, um, we want to be open and available to whatever you want to do. Um, bless you, Lord. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.